This is the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we showcase emerging technology and the stories of industry founders, investors, and leaders with your hosts, Jake Corley and Colin McClelland. What's going on, Walkouters? Welcome back to another episode of the Oil & Gas Startups Podcast. I'm here with Eric Rambeck. Did I know that? You got Rambeck? that. Okay. I don't know if there's any... That was Norwegian way to, to just pronounce that. Uh, co-founder over at Indrava, Deanna Zhang, shout out, has uh, connected us. Thanks, Deanna. And so this is our first time meeting, having you on the podcast. What is it that you guys do? You're in from Norway. Wow. That's a good intro. Thanks for being here. Um, so my name is Eric, co-founder at Indrava, and uh, mostly in charge of the commercial side of things at, uh, at Indrava. I'm a mechanical engineer by trade. And uh, started Andrava together with a colleague about seven years ago now. We used to work with upstream oil and gas um, and came into uh, Andrava wanting to help others to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. So the high level of what we do, we are a Norwegian climate tech scale-up. Okay. And we deliver a platform for finding industrial emitters across the world, stationary, big point source CO2 emitters. And the reason why we do that is because lots of companies have products and services to sell to help decarbonize, and they need a way to find their new project. We make it easier for them to find decarbonization projects. That's what we do. That's okay. a project that uh, we're probably going to talk more about today. That's called Capture Map. Okay. Capture so Map. I'm imagining this is like a, uh, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with like Inveris? Used to be Drilling Info back Heard in the of, day? yeah, I think so, yeah. Okay, so like market intelligence platform, right? So we exactly. pull in like, production data and like permits and, and everybody uses that like you have to have it at an oil and gas company here in the states yeah like you can't operate really without it so i would imagine that this is probably similar but just for the large industrial emitters for those companies that are either in the i probably imagine it would be the detection probably the uh, quantification uh obviously um you know remediation things like that any yeah. any Anything is it? Is it's, it's is a very it all, good analogy. All kinds of emissions. It's uh, only CO two emissions, so not okay. methane, not okay. nitrous oxides, not other GHGs. Okay. Pure CO two emissions, and um, and and really, we thought first when we were making this, we thought perhaps this is going to be a very good uh, tool for all the emitters out there to help them compare and benchmark their own emitters. But it turns out that really, what it is, it's it's a business development tool. It helps all those companies that have either a product or service to sell to try to figure out what is the market potential out there for the types of things that I want to sell mm. and what are the companies that I should go after to help me sell those. So it's company specific, right? So I so I log in, right? And I've got some amazing technology, right? And I'm like, but these are my clients. Yep. And it's like, at is it, is it like, hey, at a company level, at this particular site, they're emitting Exactly. X. Yeah. Okay. So think of it a little bit as a as a Google Maps, but for industrial emitters. So let's say okay. you're looking at you wanted you have a, an amazing capture technology for cement plants across okay. the world, and you know the two or three cement plants that are in your backyard. Most companies do, but then you're saying, okay, what's the potential in the U.S.? What's the potential in in Canada if I include that? What about Europe? What about the rest of the world? So in our database, we have now more than fifteen thousand different industrial emitters, and okay. about two thousand two hundred of them Is are cement worldwide? plants. That's worldwide. One hundred and fifty six okay. different countries. Okay. So it's a way for them to say, how do I take the best parts of the different regions of the world for cement plants and try to figure out how can I approach those to really sell the products that I have or services how that I have. How difficult is it to, to, to consolidate and, and probably normalize all of this information and then, and then put it into like this database? I don't want you to give away the secret sauce, but it just sounds like that's an incredibly challenging task. I think the secret sauce we have is uh, the other co-founder in the company whose name is uh, Valentin Van den Busch now called Van der Molden because he just got married. Okay. Shout out to Valentin. And um, so I'm more in charge of the commercial side and he's more in charge of the, the technical side. And what we ended up doing was we came across lots and lots and lots of different public data. And I'll get back to this public data in a second. And, and the challenge with it is that it comes in a host of different formats and a lot of it is available but not accessible. So mm. there's Excel spreadsheets, there's access databases, there are websites where you have to scrape info. So we built a big backbone in Python and it's able to automate, pick up all these different sources, streamline it, harmonize it, because the databases don't look the same. The CO2 mm -hmm. information doesn't look the same. The segmentation doesn't look the same. Um, and then we quality assure it. And it's the result of that that we put out on the Microsoft platform that's called Power BI. So there's a lot of work that goes on behind the scenes from raw data to our finished product. And that maybe is one of the challenges that we have in the industry is trying to make them understand the value of high quality information. 
this is a lot more than just a scrape of public information out there. Because if that's all you're selling, lots of these big companies that we have as users can do that themselves. Yeah. So there's a bit of a transformation that happens and that's where we add value. I think Inverse is going to learn about you guys. I think they're going to come buy you immediately. <laughs> <laughs> not for sale, not just yet. So, uh, but we'll, uh, we're always interested in talking to smart people. Yeah, absolutely. I want to know your backstory. So you said you come from Upstream Oil and Gas. Did your co-founder come from Upstream Oil and Gas as well? Exactly. So we met at, uh, at DNV. So DNV is a Norwegian outfit that's been doing a lot of stuff in, in energy and the maritime segments uh, okay. across the world, about 150 years of history. And uh, we were working there together in upstream oil and gas, working yeah. on decarbonizing uh, Norwegian assets on the Norwegian continental shelf. Lots of offshore assets yeah. um, and big energy efficiency requirements were coming in in Norway. And so Valentine and I, we were working on trying to figure out how do we develop a best practice guideline for implementing energy efficiency on board all of these assets offshore in Norway. That's how we met. Wow. Okay. So you you came into DNV essentially like that was your job out the gate it wasn't exactly like, it wasn't like you were you, you transitioned from being just a mechanical engineer into no so into that was that. my uh, that was my very first uh commercial role and uh, i learned a ton in that company both being in a it was a very technical environment lots of engineers um but they were i was in the consulting arm of that so we were trying to leverage and harness kind of the technical expertise and domain knowledge of dnv into consulting assignments so what was it? So what's like the day to day there like for you? Was it was it you you trying to hey we we have this asset we want to essentially decarbonize that? Was it you going out into the market and just trying to understand who the startups and who the technologies were and and then how you can ultimately accomplish? What you were looking to accomplish there? I think that could have been one angle. And maybe if we had done this project again, I think that's an angle we should have explored. But ultimately, what ended up happening was that big companies play with big organizations in Norway. And I guess that's the way it is many yeah. places uh, elsewhere. So DNV had a consulting assignment that we won with the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association. And that unites all the operators on the Norwegian continental shelf. So mm. it was a joint industry project where all these different operators come together and we managed and led the product, uh, project. And then a lot of our role was trying to harness the best of the expertise of all the different companies and practices on Norwegian continental shelf and put that into a common best practice. Wow. Yeah, so that was fun. It was, I mean, a lot of arms and legs, right? A lot of running around and uh, trying to understand what are the best pieces and it gets political, you know, with energy efficiency. And what were, what were like the, the biggest challenges or maybe the biggest surprises like during that time? I think a big surprise for me was that I thought this was maybe deeper implemented into the companies at that point than what it was. And it turns out that energy efficiency, at least at that time, maybe it's changed now, was still very much a one or two or three person outfit in many of these different companies. People mm -hmm. were really passionate about it, yeah. but also very lonely in their job. Mm. And so I think a big value of the project was just being able to connect the different energy efficiency advisors of the different operators together. So they had a fora to experience and explain different sort of problems, but that were very common. Mm. So a good example that, that kind of made me open my eyes was in, so a lot of this is offshore assets and they use gas turbines to operate to power. And typically they'll have several gas turbines because if one trips, you're in trouble. So they'll run two or three turbines at part load where the energy efficiency is quite bad. The higher the load on a turbine, the better the efficiency is. And so the practice is we run lots of turbines so that in case one trips, we can still operate because if you have a shutdown on an asset out there, it's going to cost you the big money. Mm -hmm. But for energy efficiency, it's awful. So the biggest operator in, uh, in Norway called uh, Equinur, um, they said, you know what? Here's what we're going to do. We are going to implement a practice that says we are going to run as few turbines as possible at as high load as possible. And we're going to take our uh, uh, offshore asset managers and we're going to tell them, if you have a trip, we'll take responsibility for that. You just start back up again. We'll take that economic hit. This is the way we want to do energy efficiency going forwards. And I thought that was pretty powerful just to say, you know what? Energy efficiency, that has a priority. Let's do this the right way. And energy efficiency with the end goal being, that's like a kind of a means to an end to lowering emissions. Lowering emissions. Correct. Plus it comes with a good other uh, advantage as well. One being save, uh, save energy, meaning you save money. Mm -hmm. So lots of different advantages as well. So how did, how did you come up with this concept for for Indrava? Was this like you trying to scratch your own itch at, at DNV? I think I got to scratch part of the itch at DNV and I wanted to scratch it more than what I had the opportunity to do there. And uh, I was very taken uh, away with the, the technical talents of Valentin, the other, the other co-founder. So uh, we got together one late night and we said, 
how could we work more with decarbonization going forwards? And we were at a point of our life where we were both married, we had control over our mortgages, and it was time to do something dumb. Mm -hmm. So we left a very stable and good paying job, and we said, we have a year to try to figure out what is it that we're going to do next. So we started in Java, the only goal being we wanted to help others to decarbonize. And not really knowing what that would mean and, uh, and who our clients were going to be, but we figured out we were consultants from before. So until we had a product or idea, that's what we wanted to do. So um, we started out with consulting. And our very first consulting gig came the day after with uh, the city of Oslo that has a okay. climate agency. And they're very much at the forefront of figuring out how do we cut emissions in a city portfolio. So that was our first consulting assignment. I was hired in-house 100%. And Valentine got into projects very quickly after. And then kind of the consulting train started going mm. in Java. So this was like through consulting, you're able to, you had identified that, hey, we want to help people kind of like decarbonize, right? And then through the consulting, I'm assuming you saw a lot of different projects. You saw a lot of different problems and yep. challenges. And therefore, I think you saw this opportunity, which I'm, I'm guessing is now kind of becoming Java. Walk me, walk me through that. Like when, when was the moment you guys like realized that the this was going to be. Yes. Yeah. Ah, great question. So, um, so you're right. So we did lots of different consulting assignments, mapping out emissions, scope one, two, and three, coming up with reduction measures, public and private sector, big companies, small sectors across lots of different stuff. And we grew the company to, uh, we were seven employees at the most when we were doing this. And one of the consulting assignments we had turned into a prototype of a tool that's now Capture Map. Mm. And so this was a, a project for the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association, and they wanted to understand what's the potential for carbon capture and storage in Europe. Should I talk a little bit about carbon capture and storage, or is that reasonably well familiar? for? Yeah, for let's, let's give an overview. If somebody's tuning in for the first time and they're not familiar with that, let's just kind of give a high-level overview. Okay, so big picture is you have industrial emitters that emit CO2 from the processes, either from power plants, from making iron and steel, uh, from cement plants. And that CO2 can be abated in lots of different ways to reduce it. But one of them is actually capturing the CO2 that comes out of the industrial plants. And then you transport it somewhere. And then you store it in the ground, typically in the ground, uh, either onshore or offshore reservoirs. Sometimes it can be used. Uh, sometimes it's used for enhanced oil recovery, where you use that CO2 to kind of push more oil and gas out of the reservoirs. But sometimes you just put it permanently in the ground. And that's a good way to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. That was the very Great high overview. pitch on, uh, yeah. on CCS. Yeah. Um, so this project for the Regional and Gas Association turns into a prototype of a tool. And in that very same meeting we're having with our client, where we show this prototype, sits the very early beginnings of a joint venture in Europe that's called the Northern Lights. And the Northern Lights project was a joint venture between Equinur, Shell, and Total Energies. And they want to build a transport and storage infrastructure for CO2 from Europe shipping it up to the coast of Norway and storing it underground offshore the coast of Norway. They needed to find CO2 emitters in Europe and they had no idea how to do it. So they're sitting there in this room. They just thought about, we need to find CO2 out there. How do we do that? And they come into this meeting and they're looking at this tool and they're saying, we want that. And our client, the Norwegian Oil and Gas Association are saying, cool, we can make that happen. Um, so for a couple of years, we were developing this together with the, the association. And we got lots of good feedback early on from the Northern Lights project. And then at some point, we start getting requests from others outside of the association. And they said, we would like access to this tool too. What could we do? And this is, uh, I think this is really a success story for this oil and gas association. And because they own the IP as a consulting assignment, the, the client takes all the IP. So they were sitting there owning Capture Map and saying, what do we do now? And so they come back to us and they said, you know what? We've been thinking. We're going to give you all the IP back to you free of charge. The only thing we ask in return is that you guys try to commercialize this. Go play. That's crazy. Wow. That's a great partner. That's a great partner. So uh, I blew our hats off. I don't think I've heard of anything similar. And I thought that was a very grand gesture of them. Yes, they weren't set up to be a software as a service company. Fair enough. But to say this can have potential outside of our members uh, on a global scale. That was pretty cool. So that was in 2020. And that's great, when we started. Great timing. Great, great timing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Things were a bit quiet. <laughs> a little pandemic going on in the background. Um, so we continued to develop and drive out partly as a consultancy, but partly also then trying to build clients for our tool. Those are two. It's, it's a great, like historically, it, it's very hard to kind of, I think, uh, unmarry at least in some part, the consulting from like early stage software development yes. for a product 
reason being is, is going back to exactly what we just talked about is that there's that feedback loop, right? Yeah. And then for one, being able to just see a lot of different projects, because I mean, I, I can count on at least two hands, the number of companies that have that have sat in here and done a podcast with me. That's how it started. It started off with yeah. consulting and it was like either we built a tool for ourselves to help our clients and then we realized, oh, wow, we could just commercialize this and, and become a tech company. Or it was just through working with them, we realized there was a massive hole, you know, in this market. Exactly. Um, yeah. yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's something that it gets discounted a lot, but it's something that's extremely valuable. I think it's a safe way to dip your toes into different kinds of project ideas because a very good early test for these types of ideas is do you have companies out there willing to pay you hour by hour to try to develop something? Mm -hmm. And if they say, yeah. Well, that means that there's a need. Exactly. Right? There's a problem around there. So there's obviously a need. They're paying you to solve it. They're essentially paying you to build the tool. And I'm going to go ahead and guess you guys haven't raised any money. You're correct. So you're totally bootstrapped. So it's like, it's, it's it checks it's a off a lot of boxes at the same time. Yeah. So yeah. if you can find that way, for us at least, it was a very good way to ease into it instead of starting out with an idea, not having any customers, not knowing anything about testing the idea at all. It kind of came at it from, we have a consulting assignment to solve. It turned out to be a tool. Okay, how do we take that tool in a very early prototype stage and how do we commercialize that? It's much better to do it the way that you guys have done it because so many founders get so caught up on I love this idea. I know it's brilliant. A few people close to me say it's a brilliant idea. I'm going to put together a deck. I'm going to go raise $10 million. I'm going to build this huge team. And they don't once necessarily go out and see, is there product market fit? Yes. You know, is yep. there somebody willing to pay for this? Are you talking, before you get the money, are you talking to your potential customers and saying, would you pay for this? Yeah. Is this valuable? And a lot of people think that that's going to like kill the sale. But you, what you don't realize is you're building up significantly more rapport with these companies by yeah. saying it's not just me going out and making money it's i want to help you solve this problem is this valuable and through that process most likely your product will become immensely better early on by go talk to i mean a minimum 10 companies who would be your ideal customers and if not 20 and just take pages and pages and pages and pages of notes yep and then you're going to be on the right path whether you should move forward with it, whether you should pivot into something totally different or whether you should just avoid the idea altogether. Exactly. Yeah. No, I think you're spot on. It's uh, it's clear that you have some wisdom in this field already. And uh, it's it's hard, right? It's hard. And it's it, hard. There's nothing easy about startups. No. And it's a very <laughs> honest kind of introspection and uh, and also dealing with, with the customers because you, you're putting everything on the line and saying, look, this is what we're building. Is And then you get to the question of, is this something that's actually going to provide you value? And it's a very honest question. And the, the ramifications of that answer that you're going to get back is very much shaping your future. Yeah. But by putting it on the table early on, at least you can kind of avoid, I'm going to build this in my basement for the next five years, come out with it and hope that I'll find a client in the other end. Oh, that's, and I'm sure a lot of people have done that. I've, and maybe that's what we would have done if we would have started this from scratch, but we kind of fell into it backwards. So, yeah. That's maybe my recommendation. Try to fall into this backwards. Because when you, if you take it the other way around, it's daunting, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, absolutely. Okay, so 2020, you, so you, you commercialize in 2020 officially. Yeah. Right? Yeah. What's next for you guys? You're going out there just hitting the pavement, so, yeah, knocking so on doors. There's, a, I mean, there's, there's both commercial and technical tasks that we're working with a lot. So we have a roadmap for both. Um, now we have about 30 organizations altogether that are paying customers of the tool. Congrats. That's a, it's a great it's number. Fantastic. It's a yeah, great number. Yeah. Um, and uh, um, kudos to the other co-founder for giving me a product that's good to sell out there. And, mm -hmm. and it's, uh, it's good to go knocking on doors with a product that you believe in. Let's talk about this, the slight detour. And I want to pick right yeah, back yeah. up where we left off. But you said products that I can sell. And this was something that we've We've, we've talked about a lot. So we just did an energy tech night in, in Midland yes. and the guy that we had on stage, his name's Duke and he'd been on the podcast and, and they just had a successful exit. Right. And one of the things that Colin called out in the interview, because every, before we had the presentations, we like to have one interview of like, hopefully somebody who's like recently got acquired a good success story for the community. Right. And one of the things that he had said on the podcast was just like, he was like, I have a hard stop. He was like, I have to go to a, a sales class. Right. And in doing, he was just like, in like wanting to, he was like, you know, I'm not naturally a salesperson. Like I, I don't have any experience here, but it's just, it's so important, I think. And I think it's something that's very underappreciated 
that especially in these early stages that you have founder-led sales. One of the founders should be rolling up their sleeves yep. and getting in there. And if you're not good at sales, you should learn sales. And there's tons of resources, tons of methodologies, tons of books, YouTube, all that kind of stuff, classes, uh, all of that. And, and the number one reason is here's why, right? As a founder, you control the destiny of the company and the yep. strategy, and particularly when you're building products. And you need, once again, that feedback loop, right? And so if you're going and pitching something, right, and you're realizing that it's not landing or there's something else, like you can take that conversation where you want and then that can materialize into you changing the product, yep. right? And you get it directly in your face. Exactly. As opposed to, and I've seen this, the founders who avoid founder-led sales and they immediately hire a sales team, yep. right? And the sales team is going out and pitching this founder's baby, okay? And then they take this baby to the company and the company goes, we don't like your baby. This is an ugly baby. Now the salesman <laughs> comes back and says, they don't like your baby. And then the founder says, it's impossible. How would you not like my baby? My baby's beautiful, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that it, that it results in one of two things, either they're growing tensions between the sales team and the founder. Yeah. Uh, the sales team just getting completely fired and then they replace it with somebody else and then we repeat the process again. Uh, and then also continuing down a path of, of either continuing to build a product that is not going to sell or continue to raise money to build a product that once again yeah. is not going to sell. And yeah. so I say all this to say for those of you who are early founders or uh, you, you want to go out and do your own thing, learn sales. One of you got to learn sales. You have to learn sales. You have to. And it's at least half of the equation in terms of getting, a, for us at least, a climate tech company with software as a service. It's at least half of the equation because one of them is building a great product. But uh, we spoke to an early startup in, uh, in Norway now who's gotten a lot further than us. And they said, don't us underestimate the need to build a powerful sales approach to this. Mm -hmm. Selling software is not trivial. It's not. No. It's a very complex sale. Yeah, and you know? I would say it's much harder to sell software than what it is to sell consulting. I've tried both. Software is much more difficult. And the silver lining is if you learn software sales and your startup goes belly up, well, guess what? You can sell just about anything in the world if you can sell software. Yeah. It's yeah. it's the longest sales cycles. There's a oh, billion it's pain. Yeah. There's a yeah. billion champions you have to win over. You could have one person in IT that just kills the entire thing. Like there's just so much that goes into that. It's so a book idea yeah. for later, I feel, software sales. I'm sure somebody's written that again and again and time over. And if there are books like that out there, please give a shout out to me. I'd love to read some because I'm sure I'm, I've made most of the mistakes in that book already and I'm sure there's more to come. Hey, that's And that's part of it though. Yeah. I mean, it's startup life in general, right? It's yeah. like like there, the, the path to success is 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 paved <laughs> with the failures of, oh. of, of, of and you just, you just, it's literally no way around it. it and, 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 the path forward is not linear either. It's 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 all over the place, you know, and just being able to survive. Sometimes it's just like wrestling a bear, you know? Yeah. You just got to hold on for dear life and... Hope it ends up. Yeah, works hope, out it, in hope the end. it ends up well. You know what I mean? So, all right. So back, back to your story. I just want to take a little detour there for a no, second. No, but that was a brilliant detour. And I think it makes sense for the others who are listening to this also to uh, try to find clients early on who are willing to test with you for sure. Um, and then we're getting back to, you know, putting your face on the line and putting your head on the chopping block and being part of the founder's team that tries to sell. Mm -hmm. So from the Northern Lights project, this joint venture with Equinor and Total Energies and, and, and Shell, the reason why it was important to have them on board in the European context was that they were one of the very early ones on to really try to build a big carbon capture and storage value chain. So they had huge value in the whole industry but they're also super demanding clients. Mm. So if you can find early clients to test with that are demanding, they were running us like hell. Mm -hmm. And that was great for us because they said, we need this and this needs to be as good as it possibly can be. It's a good stress test early on. Yeah. So we were sweating a lot with them, but it also made us then, once it was working for them, then it made it, you know, we could have a reference client say, these guys, they have built their whole sales pipeline of European emitters using our tool. Aren't you interested in doing the same thing? And that's a pretty powerful pitch. So then the next thing we did was saying, okay, how do we expand this? So these were upstream oil and gas majors. Mm -hmm. um, and then, so that's one of the verticals that we're going after, upstream oil and gas majors. I was just visiting with a, uh, a major one that's headquartered here in Houston this morning. Mm -hmm. And their European low carbon solutions team is using our tool, CaptureMap. Um, and now is pitching it also to the North American side. So lots of oil and gas upstream uh, majors that could be potential clients for this. And the way they want to make money is to say, we're going to build a transport and storage infrastructure 
we need to find emitters that can fill that CO2 to make this transport and storage infrastructure work, to make money on that. So they will basically charge money to transport and store that CO2 for the companies. Brilliant. They've been making money getting oil and gas out of the ground first, and now they're also going to make money on putting it back into the ground. And it's fantastic. I think it's a real success story. Is this good at it? Is this applicable for... Okay, so uh, so imagine I'm a uh, I'm an EMP, mm. right? Who is who is now? Um, there's there's a number of them who are who are building large uh, carbon capture utilization sequestration projects, right? And so whether that be post combustion or whether it be direct air capture, this works for both of those, correct? Right? Mostly for the post combustion stuff. Okay. The direct air capture, I think their benefits is trying to understand where could we co-locate our sites. Where it would Alongside be close. a super emitter. Exactly. Yeah. So they could benefit on synergies of scale for the transport and storage infrastructure, which would be the same. Yeah. Okay. So, but for them, it's also more about for their siting, it has a lot to do also with uh, energy availability, right? Hugely energy intensive, these direct air capture facilities. Mm-hmm. So if they can find low carbon, big energy uh, megawatt hours available for them, mm-hmm. I think that becomes a driver as well, in addition to where we're actually going to take this CO2 and store it. Okay. Yeah. Go back, back to your story. Sorry. So I, I, that was upstream oil and gas. The next one is equipment suppliers. Okay. Either very specialized, like uh, Orchid Carbon Capture, that specializes in making capture equipment. So they specialize in how do we build the capture plant that takes the flue gas from an industrial site and takes the CO2 out of it and makes it ready for transport and storage. So they have lots of leads and lots of interest out there. And they need a way to qualify all of those leads so they don't spend time on the wrong clients. This really is a business development tool. Yeah. 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 Okay. So they're trying to say, okay, we have 100 leads. Which ones of them should we spend our time and and money on to see if they would actually materialize into a project? Mm. So you could have a lead reach out and you could pull up this and essentially say, I don't even think you're qualified because I know our technology needs a minimum requirement of like X. Exactly. It could be thresholds. Yeah. It could be what kind of other emitters do we have around that would make synergies of scale for a project mm. come alive. Um, they have actually, um, there's ways of also connecting our information with a CRM system so they can yeah. get client info together mm. with these industrial assets. And then you can say, we talked to them in 2016, 2018, 2023. They still haven't yeah. gone into a feasibility study. Maybe we should leave these guys aside for now. Interesting. So you guys would rather uh, integrate with, say, existing CRMs and not compete in the CRM space. Exactly. So we want them to do that ourselves. So the way our database works is you have a beautiful visual interface in Power BI, but also Mm -hmm. a way to export all the data into a CSV file. And then you're free to do with it as you want. If you want to integrate that with a CRM system, if you want to put it into a graphical information system, uh, a GIS. Yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. So there's lots of ways to play with the data. So equipment manufacturers, Carbon Capture being one, um, another one is, uh, is Ion Clean Energy. That is a capture company here in, uh, in Colorado. And shout out to them. That's one of our first North American clients. So that's pretty exciting. But there could also be lots of bigger companies like Baker Hughes, Babcock and Wilcox. Mm-hmm. And they're trying to figure out how can we sell our decarbonization equipment to lots of these different industrial actors. Mm. So it's an industry database for them. Basically 15,000 clients across the world that at some point are going to need their help. Is there, I just had this weird idea because you're, you're mentioning uh, somebody like a Baker Hughes, right? And so traditionally, uh, Willful Services now kind of ha- has rebranded, uh, same with SLB, same with other groups, is more of like energy technology groups, right? Yeah. Is there anybody out there that is like the equivalent of like that, the like that services group, but specifically for like decarbonization to where... Maybe they're going out and just making a lot of acquisitions of like all these various technologies. And then they're like this essentially powerhouse powerhouse of like, no matter how you've got emissions, we can kind of like tackle. Is there any groups out there that are like currently doing that or? I think that's something that you and I should look into. Next. I think we should do it. Yeah, right, I think we'll yeah, the, there's going to be need for that. And yeah. to be kind of offering the whole gamut of decarbonization services and products. Yeah. That I would, would imagine you could, you could you could couple that with a, a great consulting practice. Yeah. Right. It's like that's how you start off and you engage. And then from that, you've got a, a portfolio of just companies that you've just kind of bought over time and you start to deploy that. Yeah. I'm surprised nobody's done it yet. To uh, be honest with an you. Idea with for, as many technologies uh, there are. It's, I mean, there's going to be a huge need for that. And, and what I think many of these people are, are understanding in this value chain is that they're so complex that one company cannot solve this alone. Mm-hmm. 
like uh, the likes of Total Energies or Equinude, they're still going to need a capture provider because they don't have capture tech in-house. They're going to need a transport provider because they haven't built liquefied CO2 ships before. Uh, mm. And so it, it involves a lot of different stakeholders across these value chains. And that means it's complex. But if you could have one guy who solves everything or girl, that could be a pretty neat uh, idea for a company. Let's so, talk about that next year. Yeah. So let's... So I know you said you, you met with a group here in Houston. Is that what you were in Houston for? Or were you guys in here for someone else? So uh, there's two things going on. One of them is we're trying to understand more of how can we get feet on the ground in the North American market. So okay. most of our clients now, they, they'll have North American presence, but typically it's their European arms that are using us. Okay. Um, and so we're trying to figure out what would it take to establish something happening in, in North America. There's a, a great uh, CCUS and Hydrogen Expo happening tomorrow and Thursday. So okay. we're going to be there, walk around with lots of our existing, but also new clients. Okay. and try to understand, do they have the same need that we see in the European market for our tool? The Perhaps. hypothesis is yes. Yeah. yeah. So uh, how, how uh, I'm curious, there's two, two, two things you said, you were like, for one, is it always this hot in Houston? And I was like, uh, oh, in the summer, unfortunately, it's terrible. <laughs> and so you were like, well, I guess you just have to drive everywhere. And that's just kind of like the nature of like Texas in particular, like you have to own a vehicle. Yes. Unless you absolutely live in the city, but most things really aren't even in the city. It's like, Houston is two hours from Houston. I can drive two hours and I'm still in the city. That resonates very well with me. Yeah. yeah. So, but I'm, I'm curious about in, I, I've never done business in, in Norway before and, or, or really in Europe, we've, we've interfaced with a bunch of people in the podcast and stuff, but like, what has your experience been coming to the States and like, how yeah. is business done differently? Like what's surprising, all that kind of stuff. Um, I think uh, I was talking earlier today with a institutional VC. Uh, from one of the old majors. Um, And uh, what struck me after the conversation with her was that, I don't know if this is used in particular, whether this is an American thing or a North American thing, um, but you are much more open-minded and interested in connecting people than my experience is in the Norwegian space. Mm. And it could be that I haven't explored the Norwegian space enough, but um, you need a little bit of a door opener. So we had the, the good fortune of working with somebody that we met last year and uh, who was able to provide us lots of interesting door openings here. And that helps a lot. But that being said, from there on in, I have been positively really blown away by how open people are. You included, in fact. Mm-hmm. How quick it was to say, this is interesting. Let's get together and see if there are areas of mutual interest. Well, it really helped that Deanna sent the email. She was like, hey, can I introduce you to these guys? I looked at you guys for up really quick. I was like, looks interesting. If you're referring them to me, I know it's like the truth. If Deanna's anybody to... could need help in this space to to connect people, then uh, I would put 10 gold stars next to Deanna's name. Yeah, no, she's she's phenomenal. Deanna, we're just going to keep singing your praises the rest of this podcast. I'm sending chocolate. Uh, yeah. yeah. And so, <laughs> no, no, but that but that's like, like the whole nature I hit the that's a that's chair. a feature. That's it's a feature, not a bug. Uh, there, we I like it. there we go. I got tested. I got uh, I got leveled <laughs> down a little bit. That was good. <laughs> Do you have a button on your side where you could just magically reduce the chair? I, w- I wish I did. I wish I could just magically just <laughs> just continually lower you as you're talking. Uh, for those who are who are just listening, his uh, his chair just reclined. But I'm uh, back now. Back. We're, we're we're back to normal. Um, no, it's like that's like the very nature. Uh, for one, I think it's a very. Is it a culture thing? It's a culture thing. I think it's a very Texas thing. I think it's probably an American thing. Definitely a Texas thing. Definitely an oil and gas thing. Uh, where the community is like, it's like just very close knit. And obviously that's like what we do is just, it's like just connecting people, whether it's through podcasts, whether it's through I can tell you it's video working. and events. And it gives and, a really, really good positive impression. So if people are looking at where should I start establishing myself in this world and they could spin the globe and put their fingers someplace, if it's in the industry sector, uh, energy industry that that combination and, and now also with decarbonization come here yeah absolutely man it's the the startup the startup scene generally um i would say let's just speak to houston specifically i mean is totally transformed it was like non-existent when i came to houston and uh, that was my image as well ago. stereotypically very conservative kind of closed doors everywhere but we had like one little uh co-working space that was in like east downtown and they would do like pitch days and you have like a few vcs do like a live shark tank and there's a lot of people there but it was like a lot of people was like a hundred you know back, so what happened? back then it just i i think I think over time, startups have just become more popular. I yeah. think the barriers to entry have become lower Yeah, uh, technologically. Um, I think just more resources. I think a lot of people envy 
places like like Silicon Valley and and New York from a perspective of like just being known for innovation, right? And so yeah. there's been a lot of initiatives that the city has led, um, some successful, some not. Uh, when government gets involved in anything, they they typically they typically ruin it. But um, I think the Rice University, uh, I think, has played a, a huge part in kind of innovation and through Very cool. an entrepreneurship yeah. program. Um, they've done some public event. Even if you didn't go to Rice, they have like a, a business plan competition. They have an energy uh, kind of tech event that I had pitched at years ago. Wow, cool. Um, yeah, and then then they they essentially footed the bill for this new Ion District. So there was a historical building here that yeah. was was vacant. It was a Sears building. I don't know if you guys have Sears in, in Europe or not. Um, it was an old department store where you could go. Right, in. we don't have Sears, but I, yeah, I know the concept. Yeah, yep. you, you, yep. you buy anything. They had there. everything there, right? Had everything yep. there, right? And it was like the most American thing back in the day. Well, <laughs> they never destroyed the building, and it was just like vacant. And so they wanted to turn that into what is now like the building is the Ion, and then the the broader uh, acreage is is the Ion District where they're they're trying to um, like Chevron has an office there. Yeah. Some of the other groups, like particularly the VC groups, uh, corporate venture capital groups, have offices there. Yeah. To interface with a lot of the startups, obviously there's co working. Um, so I think we'd one of them uh, later this week actually at the Ion. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So there's like yeah. there's things like that, and obviously like you know the early rise of like we work and co work. Like it's just kind of like there's just more places to work, and there's more resources and there's now accelerators and then like there's Do you feel more, it's like a snowball that's rolling it's, and it's snowballed yeah, yeah it's it's snowballed definitely huh. um even i mean ener the energy tech community i think was practically non-existent five years ago six years ago wow um shamelessly i'll say i think we played a, a pretty big part in like I'd bringing so. the From, community together yeah um but I think it is part of a, a bigger movement that is that is kind of happening with with people wanting to get into people who want to be startup masochist and, for, and, and subject and themselves. Coming to this. from a very outside perspective, I mean, it's a long swim from Norway and coming across here. But just the two days that I've been here so far, I really feel it. Yeah, so it's yeah. working. Yeah, it's it's That's it's chugging cool. along. How's the, how's the startup scene in Norway? Um, I think it's grown a lot over the last few years. Um, yeah. We never really considered us a startup in the sense that, you know, we were feet running on the ground the first day when we had our consulting yeah. project. So we didn't go the round of, you know, trying to create a product or a service and then trying to find funding for it and having to pitch to a lot of different investors. We kind of just, mm -hmm. let's try to generate some cash flow and, and take it from there. And so we evolved in a slightly different way. But from what I understanding, there's, there's lots of initiatives now. There's good funding available. Uh, and there's smart people, and there's there's people who are very connected to what Norway and the Nordics do well, right? Which is nature, understanding how we align with the values of, of the surroundings that we live in. Mm -hmm. um, and so, and of course, it's it's a bit of a paradox that Norway now is kind of touting this forefront of being sustainable and, and cutting greenhouse gas emissions, and are racking in a ton of money on traditional oil and gas business. Yeah, so yeah. that's fun. And that comes I've with the responsibility. I've met I've met a bunch of Norwegians just kind of through energy tech, and I think it was like you you had mid, mentioned you know like everybody kind of works with with Equinor and it's kind of like welcome to the club yeah and it seems Which like is that, great that, right that's that a good seems reputation to be a, for them to have a same common denominator with everybody that I've met from Norway is like they was through Equinor yeah and they they kind of brought them here and then kind of did a you know kind of a dog and pony show and it's introduced fantastic. them to the other other partners and so yeah shout out to Equinor we've had a good relationship with them for for a long time and I think that they've um, they're not scared to try things. No, that's the that's the number one thing. If I could say anything, the the CVC group is is very quick to um, at least you know hook you up with with a paid pilot. Yeah, and and try some things, and they're not scared to fail. No, and, and if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But yeah, I think that they've uh, they've brought a lot of startups in, and I think they, they they feel and they see this this ability to also go outside their traditional upstream oil and gas business and say part of us needs to or everything of us needs to transition over to some sort of sustainable energy company at some point. And we mm -hmm. want to take the lead seat in that instead of having the rest of the industry shaping where Equinor goes. I think they say, we have the responsibility to take the lead on this. And they do. Mm -hmm. And and part of that is being involved with startups at different stages and trying to understand how that can fit into where Equinor needs to go next. So they're doing lots of cool stuff on, on carbon capture and storage, but also really cool stuff on wind. Um, so really big developer now on floating offshore wind, for example. Really? Which is a 
beautiful way to marry. What is their it? Components. What does it float on? Is it a barge or is it? Or is it the same way that a that a rig offshore is? I mean, there's obviously a bunch, semi, there's a bunch of different mechanisms. Lots of different but, technologies, but semi-submersibles is one way. Okay, so you have yeah. like a big spar construction where a big part of it floats underneath water, and it uses that as a riding mm -hmm. momentum to actually keep the wind turbine upright. Yeah, and you can do that then in waters where it's too deep to have bottom fixed foundations. Mm. And, and Equinor is then using everything they know about offshore project development, which they know a lot about, yeah. and trying to say how do we take that over to wind. That's beautiful. That is beautiful. So yeah, so that's Equinor. Huge shout out to them. Um, I wanted to mention Microsoft, if we can continue yeah, giving yeah. shout outs to people. So last year, this goes back to the story of Andrava and how we developed as a company. Last year, in, in March, we got a call from Microsoft and we're using a Microsoft platform called Power BI to visualize our data. Mm -hmm. Um, and they had heard about us. We hadn't really talked to them so much before. They'd heard about us. and they, Is this the energy division or, no, or totally separate? This is energy division, okay. yeah. yeah. Who, who, who over there? I'm curious. Uh, it's a, they're all CTOs for some okay. reason. Yeah. Okay. Um, so uh, one of them was, uh, he's no longer with the company. His name is Rana Shasam. Uh, okay. And he is a Norwegian who's been very instrumental. But over here, it's been uh, a guy named Kadri Ume, uh, okay. who's been very involved. Um and, and basically, Microsoft was going to have a stand at Sarah Week last okay. year. Okay, yeah. And they called us up and they said, we're going to have a stand at Sarah Week. We want you guys to come. And Valentine and I are looking at each other and we're very focused on what it is that we do, but also can be a bit narrow-minded sometimes. Mm -hmm. We looked at each other and said, this is a waste of time. So we said, this is a great offer, but thank you no much. We're, we're not interested. Hung up. For context, this is like the, the event that like all of the executives at like every energy company in the world go to. Basically, yeah. typically naive Norwegian yeah. approach, right? Yeah, we do good at that. <laughs> so, but, but you know, they were tough. They called us again and they said, guys, you don't know what you're missing. Come over. And, and actually we declined on them a second time until the third time. You played hard to get. We played really hard to get. It's something I should have learned in high school. I didn't, yeah. but I understand now. And so the third time they called and we said, fine, we're going over. And that became kind of the, the catalyst and, and the really defining moment for when we came over to Sarah Week, the amount of feedback and stimulating conversations we had around our tool was the drop that we needed to say we need to pivot. So we talked about Andrava as a consulting company and, and we talked about this tool that we had. Nobody wanted to hear about our consulting stuff. Mm -hmm. And they're like, tell us more about the tool. Where does the data come from? Where are your clients? How do you see the scaling going forwards? What's the impact? And then we started looking at, you know, some of the clients we're working with in Norway in terms of impact and tons of CO2, and then the 16 gigatons that we have in our tool. And we're like, yeah, it's a different world. So then we came back and um, Malta and I had a hard and long conversation where we stared deep into each other's eyes. It was quite mm -hmm. romantic. <laughs> and then we said, we need to pivot. Yeah. And then we pivoted basically overnight. And that was brutal. And sometimes that, that's, uh, I mean, we've pivoted uh, at least a few times, like hard, hard pivots on things. Um, but it's like when you know, you know, it's like, you know, yeah, this is, it's never just like, I don't know if we need to pivot. It's like, oh no, it's, it's, it needs to happen. It needs to happen. And this is like, we need to totally change the trajectory of the company. And the longer you postpone that, the more it's going to hurt. Yeah. It's yeah. a bit like taking the bandaid off. Yeah. And even on things where we invested ridiculous amounts of time and resources the and money into game. something and, yeah. and you're like I don't know I think it's one thing that me and Colin have, have been really good at is just like eh, cut our losses we're pivoting like we were so focused on whatever the, the opportunity that it's like ahead of us I don't care if I've spent a year building something and if it's not going to work or for whatever you're reason you're not attached to it yeah, in that, the same there's way like, no. there's like literally no emotional attachment to like any of that anymore. that's excellent we could learn that that's and good. I think that that for us just comes out of just I don't know, a decade of startup experience. Is it survival I just, instinct? I, yeah, I just don't, I don't get emotionally attached to anything anymore. No. Nope. Uh, it's, it's purely just based on, yeah, market feedback. And how you combine that with not being so emotionally attached, but still very passionate, right? Because you need that passion yeah. to be able to build something that's great. Mm -hmm. But then also having the, the courage and the wisdom to say, you know what? We tried this. It doesn't do what we want it to do. Move on. Yeah, absolutely. A lot of people will, I think, hey, you know, the phone's not ringing. All right, well, why? Yeah. yeah this, and over long periods of time, if it's not ringing, it's like, well, maybe your marketing and your messaging and, and the content that you're putting out is not resonating or it could be the product itself, right? If the product itself is, is not selling, go back to the drawing board. Go yeah. talk to the people. Take good feedback. You know, there's a, there's a lot of people who are very, very stubborn yeah. that, that could learn a lot from just asking more questions yeah. from potential customers. No, I think it's, uh, it's right on. So, um, so that's what we, we did. We came home and uh, we had a very serious conversation with the employees in our company and we, we said, we want to pivot. We want to do it very quick. 
we were not the best at, at selling this idea to them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it ended up with uh, us agreeing to go different ways, yeah. uh, the employees. And that was, that was brutal as well. Um, and it went quick. And at the end of the day, I mean, they were super smart people. Maybe not the fit for exactly what we wanted to do going forwards. And I'm not sure if we would have been financially survivable because at the time we didn't have the cash flow in this tool to be able to survive the transition. Yeah. Uh, they got, I mean, they were super talented, so they got picked up overnight in other companies. So I'm yeah. very happy for them and uh, I very much respect them and the way that we came to an agreement with, uh, with the employees. So big shout out to them as well. And, uh, but that was part of the adventure, right? And say, we need to turn this, this ship 90 degrees around and we need to mm-hmm. do it on dime. And that's what we did. And then now we're back to the founders team. And uh, it's good to have employees and you can do a lot more with employees. It's also good to be a founders team. Yeah. You're in it in a different way. It, you're, you're in it. When you're in it, you are in it. 100%. And so, uh, and that's different. And I think there's big advantages to having employees too. Um, but having a founder's team that's very focused, I think Valentine and I spend most of our days figuring out what do we say no to. Mm. There's lots of different there's, things there, we can do. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of wisdom in that of not chasing every rabbit yes right and then there's a lot of power in just no right and and being focused i try to say no way more than i say yes yes to things because it's very easy to find some new shiny object but it takes you away from all the other things that you're currently working on it it can deviate you from uh from from long-term goals um and not to say that you should say no to every opportunity right but there's just like I don't know. Naturally, I've seen and a lot. How of things. do you say yes to the one that comes knocking yeah, on your door? Yeah, the Sarah week of I last try to year, talk, right? I try to talk myself out of like any anytime something new comes up. I'm like, I try to find 20 reasons why, why should I not? Why do should it? I not do yes. this? And if I can't come with 20 reasons why I shouldn't do it, then maybe it's something we should probably think about. And if it, and especially if it aligns with the long term uh, vision, which just kind of leads into my next question: like, what is the you're you're here. You guys yep. are you guys are crushing it. You've crushed the pivot. You're obviously here in the states, looking to expand. Like, what is what's next for you guys? That's another deep conversation I need to have with uh, with Valentin. But but what what we're lining up these days is we want to be very focused on what it is that we do, which is to be the best provider of high quality CO two information on an asset level across the world. So I think one kind of milestone for us is if we can become that industry standard, that common language platform that all the different actors in the value chain are using to talk about the same objects. If the equipment providers are talking to the upstream oil and gas providers who are talking to the authorities or talking to the policymakers and uh, and NGOs, if all of them are saying, this asset is in capture map, it looks like this, these are the emissions, this is what's happening to the emissions going down the line, Mm-hmm. then I think it can check off a dream. So how do you become an industry standard, basically? That's what yeah, we Yeah, absolutely. To, to be like that single source of truth, because I think that what I've, what I've seen um, is that different, you know, you could have two different organizations spit off the same stat, but the stats are very, very different. Exactly. You know what I'm yep. saying? Like, yep. And so it's, it's, it, it kind of undermines all of the stats because now you're like, well, I don't know what's true and, and kind of what's not. And so if you and can- how do you build that trust in data? Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Which, I mean, you even seen the same thing like with AI, right? Especially with like ChatGPT and now it's starting to, with like the web browsing thing, like Cite. And I know, I know some of the other ones are doing the same thing, like citing where it's pulling, yes. you know, certain things from so that, you know, it's not just having these hallucinations of, <laughs> of what is real. Do I, do I feel like lying today? Yes yeah, or no? Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or a statistical representation of the truth. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I think that's one aspect where we want to figure out how do we become that industry standard. And I think these types of companies that we have on board now, I think that's a good first step. There's lots more for us to do there. The second is trying to understand how do we go from a historic perspective on trying to provide historic CO2 emissions? How can we take that crystal ball approach? How could we engage the emitters to start giving us information into CaptureMap so that any given site can say, look, my corporate goals say that I need to decarbonize 50% in the next seven years. I need help. How can that be flagged in CaptureMap so Mm -hmm. that it kind of says, this cement site right here needs to do something for the next seven years. And it it becomes an urgent call to action for all these solution providers to to approach these. They don't necessarily know each other, so it needs to be kind of a meeting space. Mm. So that's a way to think about it. 
And, and the third is really trying to understand, uh, could we make this a marketplace where somehow we could take a cut on the different solutions that are provided? Mm. Let's say we could monetize the tons of CO2 that are reduced. Let's say we took a 0.1 cent per ton CO2 reduced from these different companies that have connected together. Mm-hmm. Now I'm thinking very out loud. These are just ideas that we have in our head. I think the industry standard is, is very defined. How to engage emitters is a challenge for us. We're yeah. not sure how to make the, the business case for that. But that marketplace is also something that's interesting to me. What over time, right? Let's just play this out, right? Let's say in the next five years, you've helped a, an enormous amount of these these uh, technology providers decarbonize these like super emitters. With the feedback of seeing how that's possibly affected over over time, right, and, and actually worked. Could you, in theory, see the efficiency of different technologies and almost have like a, yeah, like a ranking or a leaderboard of like this is like for this type of thing, this is, and so now you can even go back to like, it is that marketplace, right? So even if it's a BD tool for the technology providers to identify, you go to the supermitters themselves, and if they are looking to solve that problem, right, you can say that this is possibly the most efficient technology for post-combustion or yep. for direct air capture or for X. You yep. know what I mean? No, it's a great example. So let's say you're a cement plant and you emit a million tons of CO2 per year and you have 10 different capture projects happening around the world and some of them are able to capture maybe 90% of the emissions and some of them are maybe able to capture 40%. Then if I was a cement plant, I would be very interested in understanding what did they do at that site that managed to get a 90% capture rate? And if we can then differentiate by technologies that could be a very cool third-party way of showing the consequences of the different types of technologies that have been implemented. I'm mm. simplifying because there's lots yeah. of ifs and buts yeah. uh, in that and, and, and money definitely comes into the equation. But it's, it's a neat idea yeah, to try to stack different technology solutions on top of each other and say which ones actually provide the, the best emission reduction. That could be kind of neat. I love it, man. It's, it's obviously something that's extremely top of mind for all companies, particularly in oil and gas. It's, it's something that's Talks about across the board, everybody wants to decarbonize uh, operations uh, as much as they possibly can. And it seems like you guys have, as you, as you put it, stumbled upon this 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 problem. And, and it seems like you guys have built a very great solution for that. And so um, thank you. thanks to Deanna once again for, for introducing us. And I appreciate you swinging by doing the podcast. And I hope this results in lots of new business. And, and welcome to Houston. I'm sorry it's hot. That's uh, you know on, on next behalf time. of all of us Houstonians, we hate it too. Um, <laughs> I'll try to bring some snow and ice over from Norway next time around. And thanks again, Diana, for uh, for setting us up for this and uh, fantastic experience to be on this podcast. And absolutely, uh, what's the, which which old website? CaptureMap.no. No is the Norwegian suffix for Norwegian okay. uh, companies. So CaptureMap in one word: C A P T U R E M A P dot N O. Awesome. And we'll put a link in the show notes so you guys can go check us out. Free trial you can get on the website to start playing around with the tool a little bit yourselves. And then if you're interested in more, uh, don't be shy to reach out to us. Absolutely. You're LinkedIn too? Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So reach out to him on LinkedIn. Guys, if you like the episode, I think I had a lot of fun on this one. This was great. Uh, take two seconds, leave us a rating review, share with all your friends, your colleagues, and we'll catch you guys on the next episode. Cut, 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 cut.